0: Motor Mouth Podcasts. Hi, I'm Prateek, the founder of Motor Mouth Podcasts. Um, before you start listening to this episode, I quickly wanted to thank you for all the love and support you've shown for the stories that we tell in I Went Back To." If you would like to reach out to us, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. It's the same handle everywhere at Motor Mouth Pods. Um, as a word of caution, The episode you're about to listen to explores themes of racism, racial discrimination and race-based violence. The episode also contains audio clippings from an event of a recent race-based killing of a man in the US. As a warning, if you feel that this type of content may not be suitable for you, please refrain from listening further. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Over to Kalyan, narrating another brilliant story with his masterful storytelling skills. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Went Back To brought to you by Motormount Podcasts, a show where we open a window to our past to let some light and air into our present, with the hope that the light dispels some darkness and the air stokes some emotions. I'm your host Kalyan, happily perched on the ledge of this window and ever ready to jump in and out of it. There are fewer sights more comforting than a game of test cricket unfold on a glorious English summer morning. This July, when England played West Indies, what made it better was the sight of players from both sides kneeling in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's been a long, long time since we have had any action on the international arena and we are getting a bit more action now with all the players taking a knee. And of course, the rousing message Michael Holding delivered later that day as part of his commentary aside. I remember my school days. I was never taught anything good about black people. And you cannot have a society that is brought up like that, both white and black, that only teach what's convenient to the teacher. History is written by the people who do the harm, not by the people who get harmed. And things like that have to change. The image of the man was a complete blur due to the misty eyes i had but his voice his voice struck and that too with the clarity and punch of the fabled hook shot one of his eminent teammates from their playing days would have hit there are some things about us that no amount of evolution has ever managed to change isn't it I'm convinced that the wealthiest human on earth has got to be a stubborn optimist. There surely can't be a rarer or a more precious commodity than optimism today. There is so much that seems to be going so irrevocably wrong. It seems like a world where no height of perversion is tall enough, or no depth of depravity is low enough. A world where the bottom of the rock is actually forever the tip of the iceberg. All this fills you with so much of cynicism, distrust and hurt, that it's phenomenally hard to remain positive. I mean, how sad must our world be when we must insist that some lives matter more than all lives? It's like a perverse twist to the Orwellian idea, saying all of us are unequal, but some are more unequal than the others. George Floyd's killing earlier this year had caused me a lot of inner turmoil. It was a blow that shocked me into both silence and hysterics at the same time. I mean, a man had met with his death under the most brutal conditions. And there was everything to suggest that it was essentially because of the colour of his skin. Breathe, I can't breathe. Please, man. I can't breathe. Please, the name of my One would have thought that this being the 21st century, bigotry would be more subtle and disguised, at least in the enlightened West. But this had been in the face, literally, and by the very man who was under oath to protect and enforce the law of the land and its principles of equality. Former officer Derek Chauvin is now accused of second-degree murder. And what was worse? Alongside all the rightful outrage, there were also voices that said Oh, George had a history of crime and violence. Oh, George was not a model of virtue. In other words, George deserved to die. Another human of colour had perished and with no opportunity to bear himself out. While listening to Mr. Holding, I recalled all those black heroes who had made a colossal impression on me and on this world. Muhammad Ali, Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, Chinua Achibe, Wangari Mathai, May Aim, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Marley, Pele, Venus and Serena Williams, Chima Okeri, Michael Jordan and many many more. People who stood out in their fields like defiant sprouts from barren soil and whose acts were tough, perhaps impossible acts to follow. So my trip backwards this time was in search of some redemption. I just had to go back to something to get a sense of balance and harmony and attempt to calm myself, even if vicariously, to compensate for the grief and pain I felt. And what better thing to placate me, I thought, than a documentary on my greatest black heroes ever. A documentary that talks about a sporting team which was perhaps divided in more ways than it was united. A common past steeped in oppression and racial abuse and an intense will to prove a point and assert their dignity was the only thing that brought a group of individual island nations together to form the West Indies cricket team. easily one of the most dominant and compelling teams in sporting history when they were in their prime. Even if they aren't or will never be what they were, their legacy will endure like mountains and oceans too. In a world where cricket will be forgotten, this team will still be spoken about. While I do have my favourites in it, but for me, this team was the real hero. The story of their rise and success is like a parable giving us valuable lessons in leadership, motivation and sportsmanship. The fire within them to be the best, and the searing heat of it that their colonial masters eventually felt, constitutes the fire in Babylon, as the documentary is called. Before this documentary, I only knew of Babylon as the ancient capital city of Babylonia along the banks of the Euphrates in present-day Iraq. Eventually, Babylon in its adjective form, Babylonian, became a symbol for anything that was affluent, extravagant and materialistic. But it was this documentary that taught me that Babylon also had a distinct connotation vis-a-vis racism. It was a derogatory term, especially in the Rastafarian discourse attributed to the imperialist Western world. A world that was perverse, corrupt, and oppressive towards Blacks and other people of colour. For the uninitiated, Rastafarianism is an Afrocentric, socio-religious movement that originated around the 1930s in the Caribbean islands. In Jamaica, to be precise. And which believes that the Blacks will someday repatriate to their African homeland and regain their lost stature. Babylon, or the oppressive West, historically engaged in slave trade, bringing millions of Africans across the Atlantic and subjecting them to unspeakable brutality. This went on for over 400 years, practically debilitating the African continent, the effects of which are visible even to this day. But of course, it was the masters who were civilized and the slaves were the savages. Even after the abolition of slave trade in the early 19th century, the miseries of the black people were not quite over. They then became the subjects of their colonial masters and were relegated to a position of perpetual inferiority, whether in their own land or wherever else they were condemned to live. And for the people in the Caribbean, the game of cricket, beyond anything, was to become the epitome of freedom from Babylon, a place where they could assert their equality a place that would rather be grey than being just black or white. On the other side of the break, the initial years for the team and the trigger to attain ultimate greatness. West Indies was the fourth nation to be accorded the test status in cricket in 1928, after England, Australia and South Africa, a good four years before India got it. Although nation is really a misnomer here since the West Indies is a multinational team consisting of players from 15 different Caribbean territories, all of which are different countries or dependencies. But it wasn't before the early 60s that West Indies had its first black captain, Sir Frank Worrell, one of the celebrated three Ws, the other two being Everton Weeks and Clyde Walcott. It was around the same time that these island nations were also fighting for their independence from their rulers. And as they gained their independence, they had broken economies and abused societies to rebuild. So cricket wasn't quite in focus or didn't get the priority. However, they were never pushovers in cricket. Even back then, the West Indies were a team to reckon with amongst the better teams in the world. I mean, with a beacon like Sir Garfield Sobers, any team in the universe would inevitably dazzle, wouldn't it? And then the likes of Everton Weeks, passed away recently, by the way, and Leary Constantine also added the heft of their remarkable talents to the team. Yet the individual successes of these grades did not always translate into the team's success, and good results remained somewhat sporadic for them. And in due course, West Indian cricketers had earned the name of Calypso Cricketers, just cricketers who were talented and entertaining, but never quite had it in them to win consistently. It is from this premise that Fire in Babylon takes off, and through stock footage and interviews with some of the West Indian greats, It plots this team's rise in the rival to the very top of the game, where they stayed longer than any sporting team ever did. And all this while, this documentary underscores the racial prejudices this team had to suffer, especially at the hands of their former white rulers, and how that remained the very basis of their passion to become the best. In this narrative, we'll be following a similar structure and chronology that the documentary follows, which will also explain the bent towards the performance in Test cricket more than in one day cricket. It was during the 1975-76 tour of Australia that the seeds of this passion were sown. The Australians were arguably the best side in Test cricket, and West Indies had just won the World Cup earlier that year. Billed as the Clash of the Titans, this series proved to be the defining moment in West Indies cricket. The team suffered a humiliating 5 1 defeat in a 6 Test match series at the hands of the Australians. The decimating Australian firepower of fast bowlers Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson literally drew the first, middle, and last blood in the series, leaving the West Indians badly bruised, both physically and mentally. Thompson and Lily took 56 West Indian wickets between them in the series. They were quick, merciless and took the gentle out of the gentleman's game. Added to this loss was the abuse and humiliation the visitors faced from the Australian crowds. The crowds would be baying for blood and cries of Lily kill would be heard from the stands. The atmosphere was laden with much more than just the spirit of a contest. It was blatantly racist. This disaster left the team very bitter, heavily fragmented and bickering amongst themselves. Michael Holding in an interview recalls being terribly devastated and in tears by the end of it all. Reparations were in order. But they couldn't be manic or knee-jerk. They had to be clinical. The team needed a calm leader who could steer them out of this. And fortunately for them, he was already leading them and was their top scorer in the Australian series. Clive Lloyd, with his unflappable demeanour and that professorial look, thanks to those glasses, gathered the broken pieces and hearts and embarked on a mending mission. Lloyd resolved that they will pay the world back in the Australian coin. He began cultivating fast bowlers who would match the fire and punch of Lillian Thompson. And in due course, he unleashed his men onto the world with a singular brief. Become the terror that you felt in Australia, but only show it, never tell. And thus was born the legend of the West Indian cricket team that became the stuff of dreams and nightmares alike. Enter the era of invincibility. India, when they toured the West Indies in 1976, was to be the first team to face the brunt of Lloyd's galvanised pace attack. In the fourth and the final test match of the series, Lloyd went for the kill with a four-pronged pace attack with ghosts of the Australian humiliation still looming large. On a murderously green pitch, the Indians were being belted and pounded in front of meek umpires in hysterically cheering crowds. Broken fingers, swollen faces, head injuries, It seemed more like a battlefield where the game of cricket was incidental. Captain Bishan Singh Bedi finally surrendered and declared in the second innings with half his men not having batted at all. This was partly out of protest and mostly out of an instinct to protect his players against further injuries. West Indies won this Test match despite taking only 11 Indian wickets. And they won the series 2-1. While Indian cricket fans must endure the painful lows of the fourth Test match, they also have the gratifying highs of the third one in the series. India's record-breaking victory in it was a rare once-in-a-generation victory. The grit and determination of the Indian side in the series is ideally the subject of a dedicated podcast. Meanwhile, coming back to Men from the Caribbean. This test series strengthened Lloyd's conviction that he could win matches even with an all pace attack. A fact that remained the cornerstone of their invincibility in the years to come. The West Indies were now to tour England in the summer of 76. They were a different side, all pumped up and raring to go, and they had phenomenal crowd support too. Their oppressed brethren were seeking liberation in the victory of their team. And if at all the team lacked any steam, it was duly offset by an extremely cavalier and vain remark made by the then English captain Tony Craig. He said, I'm not quite sure they're as good as they think they are. If they are down, they'd grovel, and I intend to make them grovel. You must remember, the the West Indians, these guys, if they get on top, they're magnificent cricketers. But if they're down, they grovel, they grovel, they grovel, they grovel. Ouch. Tony Gregg must have taken his regret for the statement right to his grave. He had lit a match in a room full of gunpowder and actually thought he was being brave and not foolish. Suffice it to say then that England lost the five test match series 3-0, 3-0, 3-0. The West Indian ball had spoken and very forcefully at that. And their bat hadn't been any less eloquent either. A single man scored a staggering 829 runs in this series even after he missed a match due to sickness. A man by the name Isaac Vivian Alexander Richards. For me, the greatest ever batsman to have played the game. A man who acted casually but delivered profoundly. Apart from the nonchalance on his sleeve, a man who never wore any protective gear throughout his career, not because he was reckless, but because, I believe, the cricket ball could not inflict a greater wound on his body than what his mind and his sense of dignity had suffered. For a brief period after the England series, the cream of the West Indian team was banned from playing for the West Indies as they deviated to play for a breakaway and unrecognised tournament the World Series Cricket by Kerry Packer. This series offered financial dignity to the poorly paid West Indian cricketers, paid them commensurately to their talents and ability and above all taught them to be thorough professionals and work on all aspects of their game like fitness, discipline, technique and so on. Eventually the West Indian Cricket Board was forced to reinstate these players to the national side owing to overwhelming public pressure which meant Their best had been brought back in the team, and had only gotten better in the meanwhile. And then came the Tour to Australia in 1979. The Payback Tour, where they played three test matches and with a four-man pace attack in each of them. The Four Horsemen of Apocalypse, as they were called. Andy Hitman Roberts, Michael Whispering Death Holding, Joel Big Bird Garner, and Colin Smiling Assassin Croft. The team reached great heights, both literally and figuratively, with these men. Australia lost the series 2-0, 2-0. Barring a Wesley Hall or a Charlie Griffith from the past, it was from the times of these four men that the West Indian pace attack became the stuff of eternal cricketing and sporting folklore. And Malcolm Marshall, Courtney Walsh, Curtly Ambrose, Pat Patterson and Ian Bishop were the giants who seamlessly took this legacy ahead. Mind you, it'll be a monstrous mistake to think that these men only revelled in intimidation and brute force. They knew the pains of the hunted only too well even when they became the hunters. There was extraordinary gamesmanship in them. Who could forget Courtney Walsh's gesture to not run Sadeem Jafar out for the 10th wicket in the 1987 World Cup? An act that cost the West Indies their place in the semi-finals for the first time in World Cup history. And most of all, these men were extraordinary bowlers. The nine names I just took have close to 9,000 first-class wickets amongst them. Yeah, you heard that number right. 9,000. Towards the end of the documentary, we see a reference to the 1984 tour of England, where the West Indies achieved a feat no other team ever did before or after them, making a clean sweep. Defeating England, in England, 5-0 in a five-test match series, a defeat Famously known as the Blackwash. Also, no mention of the store is complete without talking about a one day innings played by Viv Richards in the very first ODI. West Indies batted first and scored 272, and Viv Richards got 189 of them, the next best score being 26-26. This remained the record for the highest individual ODI score for another 13 years until Saeed Anwar broke it against India in 1997. Yeah. Today, this 189 could have been just another good innings. But 36 years ago, it was one hell of an anomaly given the cricketing ways of its times. And yet, an innings one couldn't deem entirely uncharacteristic of will Richards. It was never about him playing futuristic or anachronistic cricket. It was about him simply being out of reach for any of his peers at any point in time. I mean, if he were to be actively playing today, he'd still be doing something unattainable by the best in the business. In fact, not giving enough airtime to the achievements of the West Indies team in one-day cricket is a crying shame. But I will have to endure this injury to my conscience for want of time. In fact, the first 20-25 years of one-day international cricket is, in a sense, the story of triumph and superiority of the West Indies over everyone else in that form of the game. I've been a crazy follower of the West Indies cricket team all my life, to the extent that I would root for them even when they played India. My own first memories of watching this team play was when most of the seniors had retired or were on the verge of it. Whatever I have seen of them in their prime is from old recordings or videos or in poignant write ups or in the moving descriptions of their exploits by elders in their families and friend circuits. What I got to watch, though, and that too to my utter fulfillment, was Brian Lara in action. There it is! The world record has fallen once again to Brian Charles Lara. Trinidad and Tobago, and the West Indies, the second time in his career that he's broken this record. And of course, Bishop, Walsh and Ambrose amongst the bowlers. And I can't thank my stars enough for that. Someone like a Brian Lara, much like his illustrious senior, is a wonder who comes once in a long, long while. Also, doing an entire episode on West Indies cricket and not speaking about Brian Lara is a misdeed as indefensible as doing an episode on murder mysteries and not mentioning Agatha Christie in it. And I'm shamefully guilty of both crimes. I hope to be able to compensate for this in the future. If you haven't watched the documentary, I can never recommend it enough. I could watch it repeatedly just to see that spunk in Viv Richards' eyes each time he appears. Watch it. Watch it if you're a lover of sport. Watch it if you're deeply disturbed by a divided world. Watch it to get hope in these dark times. It may be about a team that represents a few dots on the map or about a game barely a handful of nations play. But it is a story that deserves to be known to every thinking mind of this world. From the very beginning, I was never the one to cheer for the habitual winner. I always found the legitimate triumph of the underdog far more gratifying. So it still baffles me just when and how I became such a big fan of the West Indies cricket team. The truth is that even if they were winning, they were still the underdogs. Their heroism or brilliance could still not entirely change the sad order of our world where a George Floyd or a Manisha Walmiki close a home, still have to take it literally lying down. But yes, they did stand out both as an aberration and an inspiration for the way they made the cricket field their level playing field. Thank you ladies and gentlemen for tuning in and hearing me rant. You may follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles Motormouth Pods to get regular updates on new episodes and other shows. I will be back once again with another thing that I went back to. Till then, in the words of Bob Marley, Don't gain the world and lose your soul, for wisdom is better than silver or gold. Motomath Podcasts.